Coming up on Tech Nation, what do we do when suburbs become burdensome? Cars are autonomous, and we really are trying to do right by the planet. And yet, what's life without quality of life? Peter Calthorpe joins me to talk about redesigning the American landscape, now that in so many ways, the ideal of American life in the late 20th century just doesn't work anymore. Peter Calthorpe is the recipient of the Urban Land Institute's J.C. Nichols Prize for Visionaries in Urban Development. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. There was a time in the 1980s when the chip industry in Silicon Valley was in real trouble. It wasn't that the engineers had problems coming up with new ideas or better technology. They were certainly in the solid embrace of better, faster, cheaper. But cheaper can mean a lot of things. That mantra is meant for the consumer. And let's remember, this was also a time before the World Trade Organization was created, and a nation's respect for intellectual property was a matter of choice. What was actually happening was twofold. The American chip companies were designing new chips, lickety-split, but manufacturing them was not a perfect process. In fact, it involved a lot of labor, and there were many opportunities for larger wafers, which held a number of identical chips, to be damaged or improperly produced. So when a company released new chips, it was expected that they weren't all perfect, and any problem chips would be replaced, also lickety-split. But that's not a great way to do business. A lot of effort was focused on the problems in the manufacturing lines so that problem chips could be traced back to a human or a machine problem. But that didn't help the fact that the chips had to get manufactured as quickly as possible because, well, the companies had to sell as many of the new chips as quickly as they could before the copycat chip companies jumped in. At the time, Japanese firms would get a set of any new chips and reverse engineer them. Then they would set up their own chip manufacturing line and sell the chips on the open market, far less expensively. If you don't already know it, designing and testing a new anything is almost always a far longer and expensive process than reverse engineering. Therefore, the cost of innovation, the bright idea, if you will, was not absorbed by the chip copy company. And that's not all. The labor market of the Japanese was far less expensive. Their standards were meticulous, and they could afford to do 100% testing of the chips they put out. This all added up to a nightmare. The reverse-engineered chips were better because of the innovation that was in them, and their manufacturing process. The chips were faster because of the innovation as well, and they were much, much cheaper. The Silicon Valley chip company called the time between the new product announcement and the entry of Japanese chips into the market, the honeymoon period. Once the cheaper chips were there, the honeymoon was over. 
Silicon Valley folks knew that they couldn't keep this up forever, and there was talk that the American electronics industry was doomed. But then something amazing happened. More and more of the chip manufacturing process was taken over by technology. The chips produced had fewer and fewer problems, and the manufacturing process itself became cheaper. It put the Japanese pretty much out of business, and eventually, with the World Trade Organization, the intellectual property behind the chips themselves became protected globally. So why remind us of this part of history? Well, remember all the worry about outsourcing work from the United States to other countries, where the labor is so much cheaper. The Center for Global Development in Washington D.C. has published a study. It seems that the rise of automation is not only changing the profile of the American workforce; it's replacing many of the outsourced jobs performed in emerging countries for much less. Deja vu. All over again. I'm Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, why living in the suburbs means multiple cars in your driveway and other factors which have suddenly become burdensome or more expensive than alternatives, or given the state of the planet, arguably questionable. I'll speak with Peter Calthorpe, the founder of Calthorpe Associates, which focuses on sustainable urban growth and planning. And now, with the emergence of data and analytics, Peter is a co-founder and a principal at Urban Footprint. You may know his ideas from his books, which started with sustainable communities, up to his most recent, Urbanism in the Age of Climate Change. And now, the interview. Well, Peter, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thank you. It's been 25 years. Oh, my God. I couldn't remember. But, <laughs> you know, the years go by. I thought it was your short-term memory that goes, not your long-term. Yeah, for some of us, it's both. It's both. It's both. Well, one of the things I wanted to talk about was sort of what's happened, not just in that period of time, but we'll just stretch it to maybe 50 years or so. After World War II, the landscape of America changed. Every family had a car. The suburbs enabled everyone to have a little bit of land and their own freestanding home. And shopping centers replaced Main Street. Why and when did that stop working? Well, let's talk about how it started working before we talk about how it ends. It was oh, good a good question. Yeah, it, it was a huge, huge. It was euphoria. It was the fact that uh, America was the only surviving middle class after World War II. It was that we had an industrial complex that needed to retool for domestic consumption. 
Uh, and that it, we, we were caught up in the idea that we had to build a brand new world, that the old world was no good and there was not much worth saving. So there was emotional sides and economic sides, special interest sides, um, and there wasn't a lot of thinking about the downside of it. Um, so it got rolled out. You know, it wouldn't have happened without the Federal Highway Bill in 1956, which basically was the biggest infrastructure problem, uh, project in the history of mankind. I mean, who would have thought that we would pay for, uh, you know, uh, concrete in the sky in order to move four tons of steel with us wherever we went? I mean, you know, when you just stand back from that proposition, you think this is a strange idea. Now, what do you mean by concrete in the sky? Well, all the, you know, the freeways with overpasses. Oh. You know, it's everywhere. You know, just lifting that much concrete. You know, each inter a freeway intersection, and this is once again going to age me, but, you know, back in the day, it was, you know, $10, $20 million each, each intersection, elevated intersection. And so, uh, and now it's probably 10 times that much, even more. So the the amount of money spent was fine because we had to motivate the economy. And it was a huge public works program. It was a Keynesian strategy, really, when you think about it. And then retooling the military capacity into automobiles. It's the same stuff, you know, steel and engines and rubber and gasoline. I mean, so all of a sudden these things kind of fit together with uh, – an economic future for the only surviving middle class in the world. And then the idea was to define a totally new one. We are, of course, the only place on the planet with infinite, or at least in that point, infinite, what seemed like infinite supplies of land. So we could sprawl out and nobody really saw the environmental consequences. Um, Did they ever even talk about environmental consequences? Not much. You know, Silent Spring came a little later. And that was not so much built around how we lived. It was how we raised food, DDT it, and things like that. This is the Rachel Carson yeah. silent spring. Mm -hmm. But, you know, on some level, it was all modernist. It goes back to the 30s when uh, the modernists said the historic city was bad. We have a brave new world. We can build high rises now because we have elevators. We can build freeways instead of, uh, you know, neighborhood streets and streetcars. And the proposition was to demolish even, you know, the left bank of Paris and put in its place a series of high rises in the park. And the vision was everybody had light and air. Everybody lived in a park. And everybody got around conveniently in cars. And so it was a compelling vision. Well, the American version of that brought to you by Frank Lloyd Wright was, of course, Broadacre Cities, which was took the same idea and just pushed it down to two stories. In Europe, it was a high rise in a park. In America, it was a single family dwelling in a park, the yard. So, uh, you know, there was a confluence of ideology and economics that was pretty powerful. But fast forward, and of course, we created a whole lifestyle that is long-term unsustainable, unsustainable economically now, ironically, and unsustainably environmentally. So on an economic standpoint, I still look at uh, 2000, the, 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 the financial crash as not, not only – um, the malignant uh, financing systems that were developed. They were developed in order to sell a product, 
a large lot single family dwelling in a very remote location because it could only be remote if it was going to be affordable um, to people that didn't need it and couldn't afford it. And this so is the 2008, the 2008 mortgage crash. loans called yeah. liars loans because you could put anything anything you wanted on the paper and yeah. you could you could buy it and eventually it crashed. And fast forward from the 50s when we came back from the war and we were dominated by family households. They were you know the married couple and we were producing kids like crazy and it was everything was about what works for the family and the yard and all cul-de-sac and all that evolved out of that. We're only 24% families with kids now. The other 76% are single people, older people, empty nesters. Uh, and then we don't have a robust middle class anymore that can afford that big house on a big lot now. The irony is in the 60s, when the heyday of the suburbs, the average home uh, size was around 1,100 square feet, and we had one car. Now, and there were about three people average per household in, across America. That's mixing in all the apartments and all the rest of that. Now we're down to about, uh, I think, 2.3 people per household, and the average size is up to 2,300 square feet. We doubled the size. And we've reduced the number of people there, and we have two cars on average. So there's a mismatch. I mean, we just kept growing and growing and bloating and bloating to the point where it popped. And that's what I believe happened in 08. It wasn't just about Wall Street. It was about the kind of neighborhoods we were building. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Peter Calthorpe. He's the founder of Calthorpe Associates, located in Berkeley, California, which for decades has focused on sustainable urban growth and planning, and now a co-founder and a principal of Urban Footprint. You might also know him from his books, from his first, Sustainable Communities, or The Next American Metropolis, where we see the concept of transit-oriented development to his most recent Urbanism in the Age of Climate Change. He's the recipient of the Urban Land Institute's J.C. Nichols Prize for Visionaries in Urban Development. It's challenging to talk about urban planning when you never seem to start with a blank slate. <laughs> you're always you're always inheriting something that came before. And uh, I was fascinated by one of the studies that you did and recommendations or possibilities you developed. Um, take El Camino Real. That's that's Spanish for the King's Highway and literally the King of Spain's highway for those who don't know that it was a 600 mile footpath trail road which connected the 21 california missions starting in in baja california that's in mexico and extending north of san francisco to the last mission and if you remember your history every mission was you know a full day's walking between one mission to the other so they could all be connected well many parts of that road are alive and active today including El Camino Real, which goes from San Jose in the in the heart of Silicon Valley, north 45 miles to just short of San Francisco. So describe for us, what has that become today? Well, let me back up a little bit. Part of the formula, the suburban formula, was subdivisions. But then there were office parks, there were shopping centers, and there were apartment complexes. It was almost like you, you had a chessboard of four different pieces and you could just put them around. Well, you put them around 
an arterial network that was about a one-mile grid, which is the Jeffersonian system of platting land. So every mile we had a quote-unquote arterial. Along with this went a whole philosophy of transportation, which is that cul-de-sacs lead to to neighborhood streets, neighborhood streets lead to collectors, and all collectors lead to arterials. And the only way to get from A to B was to go out onto an arterial. So you could live in a neighborhood that literally backs up on a shopping center, but you couldn't get there directly. You had to go out through all four street types and get on the arterial and then pull into the parking lot. I mean, it was kind of a tragic uh, um, system that was very... um, you know, in a way, controlled our options dramatically. And so, you know, in historic areas like El Camino and the peninsula, the arterials, the old big streets became the arterial network. And they became where the shopping centers went with the big parking lots and the office parks with their surface surrounded by acres and acres of parking. And they were all, it was all about moving automobiles, not moving people, not connecting people to destinations, not connecting people to one another. It was just about cars and how to move cars efficiently. And so the tragedy was historically on the peninsula, there were towns. Each town had a real main street. I grew up in Palo Alto and, you know, there's a great little main street on University Avenue there that, you know, had a quite a distance relationship to Stanford, but nonetheless, you know, town and gown was present until it was, well, and then it was severed by El Camino. So there were these real places that went into decline, just as our cities did, as we emptied the middle class out of the cities, as we emptied the businesses out of the cities, as we emptied the shopping from Main Street to shopping mall. All all these places died. These Main Streets died. And all of the suburbs were then were built away on both sides uh, as much as you could away from El Camino in that area, in that whole peninsula area. And so you had your suburbs, and they all came back in to El Camino Real. Yeah. Well, they only came back by car. I mean, that was the tragedy. You know, it wasn't like kids were on their bicycles running uh, up and down El Camino. I remember I used to go quite some distances on bike, but never on that street. Um, So it's the most inhospitable place in every community. And it was the place that stole away the economic and activity energy of the historic human scale walkable places that we always had. Now, remember, prior to World War II, we were a city, a world or a country of beautiful cities with great civic monuments and public spaces, mixed use, people living downtown from all economic classes mixed together. And then we had streetcar suburbs. We had transit. They were streetcars, and they went out to these beautiful little towns and villages. And each one, each stop had a little main street at it where people would walk from Elm Street down to their local spot and do their shopping and whatever and see their neighbors and then get on the streetcar. Now, I know that's a Norman Rockwell painting, um, but it actually did exist. And the, the legacy of it is still all around in America. And the exciting thing is that that environment is coming back. It's coming back because that's the way people want to live and because that's... Uh, actually, we're the most sick affordable. of driving. We're <laughs> sick of driving. You know, the uh, you know, on average in America, it costs around eight thousand dollars to own and operate a car per year. When you think about a median income of fifty thousand, that car is a big item. 
it's a big expense. We think of housing, either mortgage or rent, as the biggest burden or the biggest challenge for households. But the two are it's so deeply linked. If you buy a certain kind of house, you have to buy a couple cars to go with it. It's like the utility. And when you add it all together, it's 60% of household costs. It's, it is the lion's share of what people have to come up with. And then you got health care and all the other things stacked on top of it. So there's a more affordable lifestyle that's less automobile de- dependent. And it's less land. It consumes less land. And it, it shoots out less carbon and air particulates and air pollution. It has all these you know, negative effects in the old model and positive effects when you, when you don't. So anyway. Back to El Camino. How do we fix it? We built these suburbs for 50 years. We got very used to them, but more and more people can't afford them. And most young people don't want to be there. Uh, And many older couples are looking to move back to cities and towns where they can have a street life again. So how do we accomplish that? I think the answer is to remake the strip, to remake El Camino to remake the, the, the arterials of America. Um, to, right now, Amazon is already destroying all those single-story uh, retail boxes with parking lots out front. Uh, there's no need for that stuff anymore. And the value, along with the land And value, what do you mean by by those kind of stores? Are you talking about like the, the, the bricks big, and mortar? The big ones we used to go into and yeah. we're saying, why are they, why is yeah. that gone now? Well, why is just, that closed? Yeah. Well, a lot of it's people just shop online now. But there's still basic stuff you want to go to, the hardware store and the grocery store. Then there's always going to be bricks and mortar. But what format? Does it have to be giant with a with a you know a ten acre parking lot in front, or does it? Can it be actually small local distribution centers? Anyway, put that aside for a minute. There's a vast amount of commercial property lining these strips because nobody wants to live on them. That is underutilized and undervalued. They happen to be in the heart of our communities. What if we were to take all that land and convert it to housing over shops and office buildings, mixed use, that actually cozied up to the street? And what if we were to take that strip itself and convert it from a six-lane car-only environment to an environment for big sidewalks, uh, uh, protected bikeways, and transit ways that are on dedicated lanes so they actually move faster than the cars. Because if you're going to remake the American landscape, you have to have a big idea. And I don't think we remake it by building perfect new towns out in the countryside somewhere that are, you know, that do all the right things, walkable, transit, uh, you know, small urban footprint, things like that. We have to repair the stuff that we've made. and We have to make it better. So... Since the arterials are close to everybody, what if they became the the great urban environment? What if they became the great housing opportunity? What if they became the place where we inserted transit as a really attractive alternative back into um, the, 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 the mix of how we get around? And it will always be a mix. So picture, if you will, El Camino. Uh, if you take out the parallel parking, you can actually get bike lanes – and and uh, expanded sidewalks. If you take out the surface parking lots and the single-story commercial and put in three-story housing over shops, cafes, restaurants, uh, small grocery stores, all that good stuff, 
you create a, a sidewalk environment, a walking environment. So you got bikers and walkers. And then if you put down the middle of the street dedicated lanes for the next generation, and I'll talk more about it, of transit. Because um, we don't like to affordable. get on those big buses. We don't need we the big know. buses anymore. Okay, and we that's don't, good news. And good quite news. frankly, as sad as it makes me, we can't afford light rail because we need it everywhere. The problem with transit is it's not in enough places until you get downtown. And so it doesn't work in the suburbs. So you need something that's ubiquitous. But anyway, so then picture all those pieces coming back together again. In Silicon Valley, we discovered 43 miles of using urban footprint as an analytical tool. 43 miles of El Camino could handle, provide 250,000 units of housing in the heart of one of the biggest employment zones on the planet, in the place right now that can't provide for workforce housing. There's so little housing being built in Silicon Valley that the average rents are out of this world, stratoscopic, and so are the, the, the housing costs are even more, you know, ownership is even out of the question for most people. What if the workforce could afford to live again near their jobs? and in nice, walkable environments. So a quarter million households could be put without touching any uh, residential real estate, just on commercial property converted to mixed use. So and we could add transit down the middle. I was going to say, so, 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 what does this, so what does this new transit look like? We know that the most affordable for form of transit that's being used around the world now is bus rapid transit. You know, because most developing countries can't afford fancy metro systems below grade or uh, light rail systems above grade, what they do is they take right-of-ways, space in the streets that's now congested with cars and chaotic bus use and trucks and all the rest of that, and they wall it off so that it's just buses moving efficiently and very quickly. And so the congestion is pushed to the edge. And down the middle, your choice of getting on a transit bus means that you can get to work on time. Um, one of the biggest systems is in Guangzhou in, in, in China, and it, it carries as many people as a subway, uh, and yet it costs one-tenth as much to build. Because you don't have to dig down. You don't have to put right. the tracks in. Right. You don't have to do all of that stuff. Right. Better and, technology. And when you get to intersections, they trigger the lights so they don't stop. So they override the local signals. So it's a very efficient system. Now, let's take a step forward to the future. Let's, take we, let's say we take autonomous vehicle technology. And instead of big buses that stop at every station because people are always getting in, on and off those, you actually had small autonomous vans. And they, with your algorithm, you went, you'd go to a station and you'd get on a van that was going direct to your destination, maybe with four or five other people. And you'd every trip would become an express trip. Uh, it would a be select custom express trip. Yeah, and so you'd be traveling faster than BRT. Um, it would cost less to operate because there's not a driver in each vehicle. There's still employees around for security and whatnot, but um, and it's running elect on electric power so that it's cleaner, both locally and in terms of climate change. So less environmental impact. Uh, less cost to build, less cost to operate, and faster service. 
that's a good formula for the next generation of transit. I've been speaking with Peter Calthorpe, whose most recent book is Urbanism in the Age of Climate Change. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at iTunes, NPR One, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, what our communities will look like with fully autonomous electric vehicles. It may not be exactly what you're thinking. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Peter Calthorpe about urban planning in the face of our changing needs and the opportunity and downsides of emergent technology. Let's take a step forward to the future. Let's say we take autonomous vehicle technology, and instead of big buses that stop at every station because people are always getting in on and off those, you actually had small autonomous vans. And they, with your algorithm, you went, you'd go to a station and you'd get on a van that was going direct to your destination, maybe with four, five other people. And you'd, every trip would become an express trip. And it's running on electric power so that it's cleaner, both locally and in terms of climate change. So less environmental impact, uh, less cost to build, less cost to operate, and faster service. That's a good formula for the next generation of transit. And I think we're right on the edge of that. Singapore is already uh, testing this concept. Now, in China, they actually have autonomous buses because the scale and the density of of development in China is such that um, they're not ready to think about a swarm of small vehicles instead that all platoon into something that looks like a train um, as opposed to a few big buses, but they'll get there. I think that there'll be a mix of these things. The key is a dedicated right-of-way. The key is equitable use of public space. Every street is public space. Right now, we give over most of it to cars. 
But there are other people that need that space, walk, bike, transit. Why don't we distribute that space in the most rational fashion? You've been doing this kind of work of of planning and considering communities, regions, even the whole globe when when you put all the sustainable areas into it. A lot has happened in the last 30, 40 years, and part of it is data. There's a lot more data and also computers and algorithms to process that data. How has that changed for you? Well, it's an, it's another part of the revolution. We can be so much smarter in how we shape our cities because we can really test the consequences. First, we can really understand what's going on, which there's a lot of mis- you know stereotypes and misinformation. Where are the environmentally valuable assets? Where, you know, where how are people moving through the environment right now? Where's the unsafe ground in terms of fire hazard, flood, earthquake? I mean, it's all mapped, but it's all disaggregated in ways that the average person can't get at. So the first thing is to have easily accessible information so everybody's smarter about what's going on. The second is to be able to build scenarios, to be able to say, well, what if we went in this direction? What if we went in that direction? What if we kept sprawling or what if we made compact transit-oriented communities? What would the results be? And that's where the third piece comes in, which is all these analytical tools that can say, well, if you had this physical environment, here, this would be the the mode split, which is, you know, how often do people get in different, get in a car, get in transit, get on a bike or electric scooter for that matter at this point. Um, We could understand what the air quality impacts and what the health cost impacts downstream of all these fundamental decisions I see it like this tree. You you start with the fundamental uh, geographic landscape of our communities. That shapes our behavior on really deep levels. Uh, Churchill once said, you know, we we shape buildings and thereafter they shape us. And it's even more so with cities. I mean, we think we're free. We think we get in a car and we can go anywhere. But the fact that we have to get in the car is a lack of freedom. It's a lack of choice. So, uh, you know, there is this kind of relationship between urban form, which then prescribes our lifestyle, which then has economic, environmental, and social consequences that we can measure. So, for example, for the state of California, when Jerry came back the second time. Jerry Brown, our illustrious Jerry Brown, yeah. And I started my career working for him the first time in Sacramento. But the second time, um, we wanted to look at the future of California if we grew in different forms. It was called Vision California. And we went through an exercise and we developed the software that became Urban Footprint out of this. And we said, well, if we keep sprawling, what are the consequences? How much uh, infrastructure will we have to build? How much water will we consume? How much farmland will we lose? How much you know, health and through activity and air quality will we uh, have to pay for health care? Um, uh, you know, what's the average utility costs in houses in different forms? All these different consequences. And we just did a, you know, a kind of grandiose but very useful thought experiment. What if we kept sprawling versus what if we built compact, walkable, mixed-use and transit-oriented environments? And the outcomes were stunning through the year 2050. So 
we did the analytics. We said, okay, if we had this compact, first we discovered that actually the types of houses that we would produce to create this alternative actually fit the marketplace demographics and economics better than business as usual just building more subdivisions. And that had been proven, that was proven after Vision California in 2008 by the crash. Um, so that was the first interesting anecdote. But here's a, a short list of some of the outcomes. Total carbon emissions down 76% because we build places where that are the buildings are more energy efficient and the transportation system is less auto dependent. And they're heating each other. It's captured. Yeah. Every every home doesn't have six sides wait, one, two, three, four, five sides with heat going out of they're yeah. like stacked yeah. it's and much simpler, yeah. Much simpler. Yeah. But you know, what's fascinating about this is that this is a better starting point. If you want to go to renewables, it's better to reduce the demand by seventy five or seventy six percent before you figure out how many acres of, of solar cells or how many windmills you need. Um, you know, what was it? Amy Lovins always said a megawatt is better than a watt produced by any renewable source. Um, and by megawatt, he meant just, you know, something you don't need and you, and you don't um, demand. The amount of land saved the area of Rhode Island. So sprawling out, we went from about 5,600 square miles with the sprawl future, came down to 1,800 square miles. Now, 5,600 square miles is a doubling of the existing urban footprint across all of California today. So just imagine L.A. doubled. Now, the Bay Area, is, you know, it's basically doubling means way out into the Central Valley. Scary thought. Um, the household VMT, vehicle miles traveled, uh, you know, on average, because everybody doesn't stop using a car. They just have more choices and they yeah. and they do different things. Went down by 10,000 miles per household. Now that, if you apply some economics to it, is a huge pocketbook savings, as well as why the carbon, why the air quality gets better. Water demand per household went down 94 million acre feet. Now, that's a big number. That's like the the San Francisco Bay filled. <laughs> so this is these are really big. But here's the one that I think is interesting. We have all these great uh, environmental consequences, but we have great economic consequences. The average household utility uh, and auto costs goes from 22,000 per household down to 11, cut in half. So it's a more affordable future. It's a future that's better for the environment, and it's a future that fits the lifestyle desires of more and more people. That's what I call co-benefits, the co-benefits of good urban design. And for me, the real question is politics. You can't – I mean, these are beautiful ideas, right? And it's pie-in-the-sky utopia, and, you know, and everybody's been talking about it forever. But how do you get there politically? I think it's all about coalitions. So the environmentalists who care about preserving land, the agricultural community that doesn't want uh, to lose more acreage, um, the water advocates who are trying to figure out how America, uh, California is going to live in a desert climate <laughs> and not consume too much water, um, the social activists that wants to produce affordable housing, 
the local government official who wants a balance sheet that works, that he's not spending too much money on infrastructure and infrastructure operations and maintenance, they all are now a coalition. They all have common purpose. They all win from this strategy. So rather than each of them being an individual actor where the the Sierra Club or the Nature Conservancy is out there saying we've got to conserve this land, don't talk to me about affordable housing and don't talk to me about uh, the fiscal balance sheet of a city. Uh, This is my this is my stick, and then this is my piece of it. Yeah, this and then is my piece, this of it. piece of it. So, and what about the seventy-five million baby boomers, ages fifty-five to seventy-five, who grew up in those suburbs, who don't want to live there anymore? Well, that's what I mean when I say the dem- we don't. The demographics don't fit the model. The American dream has to be updated. That's the bottom line here because we've changed. We're more complex. We're a lot more interesting. And if we if we build great urban environments, the synergy that comes out of the differences, this is one thing we can't calculate, is the social impact of integrated places. But this is, uh, we know that the vitality and greatness of cities, which has been the, the genesis of most innovation in the history of mankind, comes from that complicated, messy mix that cities represent, where people intersect other people that aren't just like them. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Peter Calthorpe. His career has focused on sustainable urban growth and planning and a commitment to put planning tools into the hands of everyone, organizations, governments, society, groups, and individuals. His most recent book is Urbanism in the Age of Climate Change. In San Francisco, as in many other cities, People are loving their Ubers and their Lyfts, and yet we also hear about massive congestion. Is that a reality in your mind? All the analysis shows that autonomous vehicles, small vehicles like our regular cars that are used by Uber, taxi service, or even individually will increase the amount of vehicle miles dramatically. So it will go anywhere from 30% to a doubling Why? Because there's all sorts of zero-occupant vehicle time out there. So, for example, let's say you call a Uber and you're you're in a kind of remote spot to start with. Uh, That car is probably traveling empty to pick you up. So if we think single-occupant vehicles are a problem, just imagine a lot of zero-occupant vehicles running around. You're it a, may turn you're out you're in a traffic jam on a freeway, and yeah. you look around, and there's and, nobody in the car. And any of the cars around you? Now yeah. that's that's uh, dystopian. <laughs> well, but it's probably true. So take for example that you own a uh, an autonomous vehicle, and you think, well, I'm now I can now commute a longer distance because I can work on the way. I don't have to pay attention to the road. I can even watch some movies. I can catch up on Game of Thrones, what have you. Okay, so I'm traveling farther to begin with. And when I get there, parking is really expensive. So I send my car to a remote parking lot that's cheap. That's extra miles, more vehicle miles on the road, which is what causes traffic. So this is why um, we know that there'll be much more traffic in that future. So it may be wonderful to not have your hands on the wheel. But if you're standing still, what difference does it make if you're not getting anywhere? 
So the other here's the other uh, image that's kind of frightening. You want to take a quick errand somewhere. You want to go shopping, maybe you know, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And uh, once again, there's not enough parking. It is more efficient if you have to pay for parking to actually send your car out and have it circle around on local streets than it would be because the energy is pretty cheap in an electric vehicle than it would be to pay for parking. So a lot of people will go shopping and they'll send their car out just to roam until they're ready to be picked up. There's nothing in the economics of that technology to stop these things from happening. I want to get back to China. What do you see in China? Well, when I started working there for the Energy Foundation, who wanted to um, create a, a less carbon-intensive future for China, uh, and I had a, a, just the good luck of convincing them that maybe urbanism had, could play a role, not just renewables and conservation. And so they said, yeah, let's try this. So. Uh, I went there 10 years ago and said, here are some design principles that are really universal. These are the things that make a great city, regardless of where you are or what your history is. And they are simple. It's human scale. It's mixed use. It's getting away from the concept that the city could be auto-based, that it has to be transit-based. It's these fundamentals, that the block size is something that you're comfortable walking on, and the street size is something that's at a human scale enough that you feel safe crossing it, all of which wasn't happening. When I got there, uh, China was practicing what I call high-density sprawl, which sounds like an uh, oxymoron, but it's not. They were basically building the American suburb, but an average of 15 stories. I, and, I saw this. Uh, they were We were on their new high-speed uh, train from... Shanghai to somewhere, I don't even know. <laughs> they, they, they took us on a bus out there, which like two and a half hours, but under an hour back, as we were coming, there was nothing flatland, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then you would see like six, 10, 12 high rise buildings, identical, yeah, all apartments. Yeah. And then it would just, and then it was like, you know, the old West at the end of the there was nothing but all of a sudden you were in the prairie again. Yeah. You go a little bit, a few more minutes on the train, there they were. Another set of identical to each other, but maybe not to the one we just left, set of high-rises. What did you say, 15 floors? That looks about right. Yeah. It was it was eerie. Yeah. Well, and the, even the pattern that they were building adjacent to their cities was literally city blocks that were one quarter of a mile on each side. So big that the the streets that surrounded them had to be a minimum eight lanes because if you don't have any through traffic except every quarter mile at that density, you have a lot of street that you have to build. So imagine you're living in this quarter mile area. You're probably living in a gated community of 5,000 units of housing in identical buildings and you're surrounded by eight lanes of traffic all around. It's the most inhumane, unenvironmental, unsustainable urban form I had ever seen. It kind of even seemed worse than the American suburb in that regard. So we went and we presented these design principles of uh, small blocks and transit-oriented development and mixed use. And the central government was very interested. They said, we know we have a problem. We know we're building a, a, the paradigm no longer works. We did it because 
We wanted to build fast and we wanted to build a lot. And yes, we brought 800 million people out of poverty, which has never happened in the history of mankind. But we know that this form of urbanism that we brought them to seems great now, just like our uh, low-income housing seemed great back when they built Cabrini Green. It was, you know, uh, Shangri-La of gardens and towers. Uh, but of course, everybody knows it doesn't work in the long run. So they said, let's entertain this. And they sent us out and they gave us six cities to experiment, to show that these principles could be applied and could work in China. Look how many cities they have. They could give you six of them. Oh, yeah. No, it was nothing to them. (laughs) One of them is Chongqing. That's a city of 30 million people. So it's the size of California. Uh, And our project was four and a half million to plan an area for four and a half million people, just to prove a concept, proof of concept. So fast forward, we actually succeeded. And we come back to the central government eight years later, and we say, look at all the experience we've had. Look at this version of the future versus more of the same. And they had a, a, what's called a state council meeting, which is the highest level of the Politburo, for the first time in 27 years to consider urban design standards. And they came back with a set of standards that are basically global best practice in terms of all these ideas that we've been talking about. And they're now adopted. And, you know, strict design standards, because that's the way they do things in China, have been placed on cities. And there's a maximum block size based on type of use. It's it's about 300-foot square block. You know, at their densities, you maybe get 500 units. It's It's like Greenwich Village. That's the density that they're ending up with. And, of course... The, you know, they have neighborhood streets with bikeways and, and uh, you know, the one thing they've always had is a lot of transit. So they built massive quantities of transit, and that's good. They were ignoring it with their land use. That was the tragedy. And now each station is a focal point for jobs and and shopping and civic uses and all the things that everybody shares. So it organizes the uh, the city and the region around transit instead of freeways. And it's a huge success. And now they're moving ahead, you know, and unlike a democracy where we have to get approval for everything from uh, 20 groups right down to the local neighborhood, uh, they mandate it and it happens. So it is happening a lot faster. Same way they built their high-speed rail system in five years. They have a network now that covers the whole country. They said, we're doing this, and, you know, but, you know, there's give and take there, right? They just plow ahead regardless of a lot of sensitivities we have. But you got to believe there's a healthy middle ground in there where we can actually accomplish what we need to do without being uh, destructive about it. What are they going to do with all the housing that they've already built? You know, it's interesting. One of the regulations that came out of the state council was to subdivide the existing super blocks with pedestrian only, pedestrian bike only streets. If you if you visit Singapore, which is everybody's golden model of the city of the future, the green city of the future, that's exactly what they did. They have a lot of pedestrian bikeways that's, that are separated from the streets. In America, we tend to like to mix things. Main Street always mixed cars and people and bikes. And so, you know, that's a one kind of vi- urban vitality. But in many parts of the world, they just say, no, no, we're just going to put – we're going to create completely great pl- places for pedestrians and bikes. 
I added to that the idea of this ART system. So why not on those off-street environments where you have pedestrians and bikes, why not put these these uh, autonomous shuttle vans and let them run around in the same kind of human-scale environment? And that then attracts more of the shops and the cafes to those streets, and the roads become more like the utilities. And you're able it. to say, I'll meet you here, and yeah, you know, yeah. everybody knows they can get there. Yeah. But that's how they can renovate those existing super blocks. They can carve them up into human-scale places with uh, auto-free streets. Now let's get back to urban footprint. Uh, it started with the, the software and the data collected for California Vision. And now those uh, software packages, or let's just say the service that comes out of them, the analytic services, they're available to many different people and groups for many different purposes. Right. I mean, what's beautiful about it is that uh, we've made it so that just about anybody can use it. You don't have to wear a white jacket. You don't have to study GIS uh, systems. The the geographic information systems. Yeah. You can just – you can pick it up and it's fairly self-explanatory. And then you can go deeper and deeper into it. The Nature Conservancy came to us and said, uh, well, you've done a great job of looking at the consequences of urban development and all the environmental impacts. What about the consequences of land preservation? And so they paid for us to add an analytical model that looked at carbon sequestration, aquifer health, um, agriculture productivity, biodiversity, all the values that you get out of preserving and using open space in an intelligent way are now built into this tool. So if that's what you're interested in, you can actually – begin to do those analytics. San Jose is actually doing that right now with uh, land saved by building compact areas. But the idea is that and we that everybody can use it, and we're actually not even sure. People keep showing up that we didn't think would be interested. Um, so I can't say names, but, you know, some of the bigger uh, mobility uh, businesses are very interested in being able to understand and model different types of offerings in terms of how people get around. Um, You know, the environmental community obviously is very interested. And so local environmental groups could use it. Local planners can use it. Cities can use it for their, their planning efforts. The World Bank is interested because they have to understand the consequences of these giant infrastructure projects around the world that they build. So when they choose to build a freeway for a city, they ought to look at the consequences across this what I call co-benefit field. And and so we worked with them and did use Urban Footprint in Chongqing in China as a test case to map out um, what kind of infrastructure contributes to what kind of urban growth and what are the consequences. It's almost like, well, maybe banks ought to look at underwriting their investments with a tool that lets them understand a full range of consequences. Right now, the underwriting is all about, do we get paid back? Do we get paid back? That's kind of the one and only criteria. But what about the social consequences of making that loan or the environmental consequences? It would be good for them to have an easy way to sort that out. I also saw that there were professors using this in their classes, 
uh, you know, assigning them to their students about various problems, that there is an educational option as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, urban geography, they call it, and there's you know, the planning world is is has a whole dimension of research that this, of course, enhances. And over time, what what's going to happen is we get more and more layers of information, which either can be a mess and hard to manipulate and get useful insights out of it, or it can be coordinated in the way that Footprint does. Um, but uh, So that, plat- that end of the platform keeps growing, and we have more access to more information, easier to do research. The other end is also something that grows. So just like uh, the, 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 uh, the Nature Conservancy came in and said, we want an analytical tool that deals with open space, not just with the built environment. And they added that. The same with the American Lung Association. They came in and said, well, you know, obviously air quality is one of the biggest drivers of, our, uh, of health-related issues. We'll pay and build that analytical tool. So we're looking forward to being like the Apple apps a platform where people keep adding different analytical tools because people have infinite number of interests. The intersection, for example, between potential fire zones and existing neighborhoods and future planned neighborhoods, something that should be in on a clean map for everybody to see in every city, and every insurance company needs to understand that too. So, and same with flooding and sea rise and all these things. So lots of analytical tools get built on top and it becomes more and more powerful, which means it's more and more useful. Peter, such a pleasure. You must promise to come back and see us again, not in 25 years, but Okay, 15 years. Oh, no. (laughs) Come back sooner. Come back sooner. Thanks so much. We really, really appreciate it. My guest today is Peter Calthorpe. Calthorpe Associates is located in Berkeley, California. More information is available at calthorpe.com. Also, Urban Footprint. It can be found at urbanfootprint.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.